welcome to today's Euractive online event, the EU's Carbon Management Strategy and the Path to 2040. My name is Dave Keating and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios at the heart of the EU quarter. And today we're going to be talking about a group of technologies that have a lot of promise but also can be somewhat contentious. Now, the carbon capture, use, and storage technologies have been one of the most keenly watched technologies in efforts to fight climate change. But despite significant efforts by both the public and private sector to get demonstration projects off the ground, making CCUS a widespread reality, has been an uphill battle. Now, earlier this month, the European Commission released a Net Zero Industry Act along with its recommendation for a 2040 emissions reduction target of 90%. It calls for a simplified regulatory environment in order to rapidly deploy CCUS demonstration projects and scale up commercial success. The Act aims at promoting investments in the production capacity of products that are key in meeting the EU's climate neutrality goals, so CCUS attached to manufacturing capacity. Now, it sets a target of 50 million tons of annual CO2 storage capacity by 2030. That is obviously way more than what exists today. So the question is, how do we reach that ambitious target? Now, industry stakeholders have argued that while the EU has set ambitious objectives, the deficiency in transport and storage infrastructure remains an issue in the absence of substantial policy report. You've got to have a way to move the carbon around and to get all those different pieces where they need to be. Now, hard-to-abate industries such as cement, steel, chemicals, and others are in particular need of additional technology options as they chart their transition and make investment decisions. Now, at the same time, CCUS hasn't been without controversy. Some climate campaigners have said that these efforts are a distortion, uh, it's a distraction rather, toward more proven solutions like renewable energy, while others have said that building this accompanying infrastructure would lock Europe into fossil fuels for decades longer than envisioned by EU climate targets. So in this virtual conference, we're going to discuss where we stand on the road to reaching that target of 50 million tons of CO2 stored by 2030. Will this new strategy be enough to get CCUS off the ground? And what do industry stakeholders need from policymakers and vice versa? And finally, the big question, is CCS and CCUS really an objective worth pursuing? To talk about these issues, we have an excellent panel lined up with us here today virtually. Let me introduce them now. We have Rude Kempener, who is team leader for industrial carbonization, decarbonization rather, at the European Commission's Energy Department. We have Ragnar Semunseth, who is Councillor for Energy at the Mission of Norway to the European Union. We have Claire Curry, Global Head of Technology, Industry and Innovation at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We have Miles Allen, Director of the Research Institute Oxford Net Zero. We have Cedric Demeus, Vice President for Public Affairs and Social Impact at the Swiss building materials company Holsim. And we have Maria Girao Duarte, EMEA representative to the EU institutions at Japanese multinational engineering, electrical equipment, and electronics company Mitsubishi 
heavy industries. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Ruth, let me start with a question for you, because I was talking about this um, strategy that's just come out from the Commission. So how does the Commission envision this future of CCUS technologies going forward, particularly with regards to the 2040 target recommendation? How does it relate to that? Uh, thank you, Dave, for organizing this event. Uh, and indeed, let me quickly uh, take you through kind of our strategy for the industrial carbon management. Now, first of all, uh, and you've mentioned this in your introduction, uh, what we put forward is now uh, our proposal for an ambitious target in 2040 for CO2 emissions of 90%. Now, with that comes essentially the conclusion that the capture of CO2 will be needed to achieve any of the scenarios that we looked at. So, like you said, and we've we've looked at CCS in the past, but today we really are at a, a situation where there is no kind of doubt about it anymore. We will need it to meet our climate targets. Now, the second thing which you mentioned that is also important, that's also very much addressed in this strategy. Uh, the capturing of CO2 is, of course, related to fossil fuels. But actually, if you look at the strategy, if you look at our analysis, the storage of CO2 from fossil fuel sources will actually be the minority in 2040. So this is not, which uh, the CCS strategy is not a replacement of, for example, renewables or energy efficiency. It really complements it because after 2040, actually the use of fossil fuels will be very, very limited. And what we need then this carbon capture for is, first of all, to capture all remaining process emissions. We have to ensure negative emissions. So ensure that whatever residual emissions are still there are compensated. And we will need the capture of CO2, for example, from biogenic sources. So from uh, the use of, of biomass or actually getting the CO2 out of the air uh, to have uh, carbon molecules for our industry. Now, the second, I think, important point, and you mentioned to that, is we need scale. We have indeed in the Net Zero Industry Act an obligation there to have already 50 million tons of uh, CO2 storage capacity available in 2030. Now, if we look at 2040, we'll need to uh, increase this fivefold we are thinking about around 280 million tons. So some of this is for storage of the fossil fuel, fossils, uh, fuel, uh, CO2, as I mentioned before. But actually, a lot of that will also be about having capturing capacity for uh, negative emissions, as well as, like I mentioned before, uh, to take it from the air or biogenic sources. Now, to do that, we really will need the creation of a single market for CO2 in Europe because we need to have an industry which can carry this. So we need readily available carbon management technologies, both in the industries where we have to remove the CO2 as well as uh, ensuring those negative emissions. Now, in order to get to this European market, we will need a CO2 transport infrastructure. It really is a key enabler binding all of these different pathways. And in order to get to such an industry, of course, and to get to such infrastructure, 
we have to kind of find measures and ways to kind of connect uh, the sources of CO2 with the storage capacity as well as those users of CO2 and creating a business case for that is also very much important. Now, last but not least, and I think this is very important to emphasize, uh, the carbon management strategy also makes it clear that this is not for free. We will need major investments for this. So the sooner we reduce the use of fossil fuels, fewer investments that we need. And also CO2, capturing CO2 is energy intensive. So we will need also, again, more energy to capture that CO2. So ultimately, our conclusion is it needs to be part of our portfolio of energy policies. We need infrastructure and we need to scale it up. Otherwise, we cannot meet our climate neutrality targets. Thanks, Rude, for walking us through where we are in terms of the policy. Miles, you're well-placed to let us know where we are in terms of the technology and the, the economics here. Um, where are we at right now with CCUS technologies, and what trends are we seeing for the coming years? Well, the technology has been working for decades. I think the problem is has always been that we've yet to develop a robust business model for CCUS that actually allows industry to invest against it. Um, I mean, our policies really need to acknowledge the, the very simple fact, and this is something that I, I'm delighted the EU is now uh, acknowledging. I mean, we are going to generate more carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels than we can afford to dump in the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels and other sources like making cement then we can afford to dump in the atmosphere if we're going to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. So that very simple fact means we need to develop ways of disposing of carbon dioxide permanently. And the only way of doing that right now that's available on any scale is pumping carbon dioxide back underground. So in the very big picture of the planet as a whole, it is absolutely imperative that we scale this carbon dioxide disposal industry as fast as possible, such that by mid-century, every ton of carbon dioxide that's still generated from geological sources, whether it's industrial process emissions, cement production, or perhaps still some fossil fuel use in some countries, every ton is either captured at source or recaptured from the atmosphere and re-injected back underground. That's the geophysical imperative that we have to achieve to stop fossil source CO2 causing further global warming. Now, how? So, as I say, the technology for, to do this has existed for, for decades. The challenge has always been the business model. Um, environmentalists love to point out the fact that so many CCUS projects have failed. But if you look at each one, the failure has not been a technical failure. It's been a failure of incentives to actually make the project viable, to actually require anybody to keep the project going. And that is where I think the Net Zero Industry Act and the European Commission is, is massively to be commended for this, has actually broken very significant new ground in that it is introduced in, in Article 18, the principle of, I, I mean, I, I think lawyers would dispute my characterization of this, but I, I'm just gonna say informally, uh, it's introduced the principle of producer responsibility to fossil fuels themselves, because it's introduced the idea that anyone who produces fossil fuels in the European Union has a responsibility to dispose of the carbon dioxide they generate. And, and that is 
uh, that is a really radical policy innovation, and I firmly believe it's the one that will crack the problem of, uh, of, of getting resources, building the business case for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Because one thing which is very important for everybody to understand is CCUS is very, I, I often hear business people saying, you know, we need a better business case, which often tends to be code for we need bigger subsidies. Subsidies are not a business case. Carbon dioxide capture and storage is an essential waste disposal activity, which everyone who benefits from our continued use of fossil fuels and other um, fossil sources of CO2 needs to be investing in. It, it's like, it, we should think of it like disposing of sewage. You know, it, it's, it's not acceptable to dump your sewage in the rivers. It should not be acceptable to dump your carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it should not be acceptable to sell products that require consumers to dump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It's that simple. And so the only real business case, the only robust business case for carbon capture and storage on the scale required is actually to make it a licensing requirement of continuing to sell and use fossil fuels. And I think we are moving slowly in that direction. And I very much hope that the, 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 this new legislation from the European Union will form a template for other countries um, to think in the same direction. The, the problem, of course, is the numbers. I mean, 50 million tons capacity, it's going to be well under 10% of the carbon dioxide that will still be being generated um, from fossil sources in the, in the EU uh, in 2030. Um, it, it's going to have to go up very fast, and that's only capacity. You know, uh, do we have any guarantee that capacity will be filled? Um, so I, I think we it would be it would be great to see more more pressure, uh, and particularly more pressure on the industry to play its part in building this capacity because they have the they have the ability to do so. They've got the money to do so, um, but um, they, at the moment they don't have the incentives to do so. So that's the crucial gap in our CCUS policy at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting point that the failure here has not been actually with the technology, it's been with getting the financing, it's been getting the money behind these demonstration projects to get them moving. Um, Cedric, let me get you uh, your perspective on this coming from the industry. So we just heard from Miles that industry really needs to go all in here. Um, what have been Holson's activities in the CCUS space thus far and what are the plans? Dave, thanks uh, uh, for the question. Um, <clears throat> look, I'll start by um, illustrating what our, um, our trajectory uh, is. And for that, I'll mention three figures, two, five, and eight. So basically, um, Holsim has, uh, and if I um, essentially talk about Europe here, Holsim is committed to invest about two billion uh, Swiss francs uh, in the deployment of CCUS technologies across a network by 2030. That brings me to the second figure, uh, five. That will allow, allow us to capture at least 5 million tons CO2 per annum by 2030, which brings me to the third figure, eight. That capture will allow us to put onto the construction market at least 8 million tons of decarbonized cement and construction materials to decarbonize the, uh, the, the built environment. Um, that means that we're now in <clears throat> full implementation, knowing where we are, what we are aiming at, and what our North Star is. We are in full uh, uh, implementation and uh, deployment. It means that we have what is probably the largest 
portfolio of CCOS uh, projects uh, across the single market uh, with highly mature uh, technology. As Miles was saying, the, the issue is not so much the technology and the deployment of the technology, but is the construction of the full business case. And I will, I will come to that in, in, in a second. So we have highly mature uh, projects in uh, Belgium, France, Germany, Poland, Croatia, Greece, to mention six countries, but also developing a further eight large-scale projects, which are characterized by a mature technology and, and, and advanced um, collaboration across the value chain. Now, these projects, they're not demonstration projects. They are full-scale industrial projects. Um, <clears throat> they are based on, as I said, industrial value chains, which basically do not exist yet, uh, uh, which involves, of course, the, um, uh, the implementation of the technology, but the transport of CO2, the storage of the CO2, the usage of the CO2, and all of this requires um, relationship and, and, and contractual relationships that we are all learning, that we are developing. As I said, they are not existing and not in place anywhere in the world, pretty much so. Um, <clears throat> and that brings me to, 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 to the last point I would like to make and, and to come to, to what Hood said, the, the specificity of those projects that we have in at Holcim, which is linked to cement manufacturing, is that our CO2 is not linked to fossil fuel or the use of fossil fuel, or in some case, in a very minor way. They are linked to an industrial process, the mineral transformation of limestone, is that what we call a, a process uh, um, emission. Um, so where I want to, to get to is that we are not in the business of CCUS or, or CO2 management. We are in the business of decarbonizing construction. Um, but the latter, the CCUS and the CO2 management has become a central part um, or a central element of our competitiveness uh, today and tomorrow. So we are one actor but in a much larger ecosystem that is in full development and referring to what Miles was saying, where everyone is trying to understand how the business case uh, functions because we have different interests and priorities. Our, our main, let's say, uh, interest is to decarbonize our materials and to be an enabler of decarbonized construction. Um, <clears throat> so we, we highly welcome what the Commission has been doing because uh, this ecosystem requires um, a fair, a competitive, and a dynamic uh, policy framework that really works as an enabler for this full value chain to, to develop and eventually flourish. So, um, Dave, I'll stop here for now and keep the rest for the debate. Thanks, Cedric. Claire, let's turn to you next. The, we've heard a lot so far about the potential of CCUS and uh, both in terms of the commercial activity, but also in terms of actually getting carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, you've been looking at these issues. What would you say is the real potential of CCUS based on what we know today? Thanks, Dave. Um, and the comments so far have been great. It's been um, fab to be involved. I want to provide some data and context um, of the work that we've been doing looking at, yeah, size of the industry and, and where we're going, which I think will be helpful for our debate. So today the sector is really quite small. I think, you know, Miles mentioned it and others. It's about 57 million tons of capacity globally. And almost all of that is 
capturing natural gas processing CO2 emissions, so a really simple use case. Um, and what the next few years will show, as everyone's been mentioning and Cedric pointed out there for Wholesome's case, it, we need to show that we can scale, um, both in terms of volume captured, but also in terms of industries that we can apply CCS to. Now, BNF tracks globally and 417 million tons of capacity planned to come online by 2035. So that's a sevenfold increase over what's currently online. And the exciting thing is in the next 10 years, these will be applied to oil refineries, um, gas power plants, coal power plants, cement plants, as Cedric mentioned, but also things like hydrogen, ammonia, ethanol, um, steel mills. So there's a real wide range that will test um, kind of our business cases, as Miles said, will test some elements of technology particularly. Um, but this is not sufficient to get on track. So to your point about where do we need to go or where can we go, for, to get to net zero globally by 2050, um, BNF scenarios show about seven or over seven gigatons of carbon capture capacity by 2050. Um, that's 128 times more than we have today. It's, and it means we need to get about 3.5 gigatons globally installed by 2035. So to Miles's point, you know, the EU's goal of 50 million tons is, is admirable, but globally we need, you know, eight times more than's currently been announced globally by 2035. So it's a really, really significant jump we have to take in the next few years to keep on announcing that capacity. Um, and I want to just touch on some of the points mentioned before about why we need CCS and your intro as well, Dave. A few years ago, um, as you pointed out, many people, including environmentalists and NGOs, would say that we only need carbon capture if we've kind of failed with other more feasible routes or more renewable-based routes to net zero. Um, and I would disagree with that, as I think Rude and, and Miles pointed out, it's now, and Cedric, it's, it's essential for many things that aren't fossil fuel-based. But also it's about how fast we need to decarbonize. We um, have not done a very good job as a, as a world right now of decarbonizing to date. And the amount of CO2 we need to stop producing and suck from the atmosphere is so significant. We can't wait for new technologies. There are potentially routes to decarbonize all of, all of our processes um, through new materials or through electrification, hydrogen, um, new things we haven't invented yet that might mean CCS isn't needed but that would take too long and potentially be really expensive as well. We know CCS works, we have an idea of the costs, so it seems only common sense to use it where it is necessary. Now in the power and transport sector, we might be able to, especially in Europe, you know, use renewables and storage and electrification and find a way to get to net zero in those two sectors without CCS. But for industry, as has been mentioned, which is a quarter of the world's CO2 emissions, we can't avoid CCS, particularly in cement. It's 75% of cement's abatement in our scenarios for 2050, but steel and petrochemicals, um, particularly, so the making of things like plastics, um, will need CCS. Never mind the carbon removal that Rude was talking about that we definitely need, and things like biogenic removal. Um, the other issue is in Europe, maybe we will find a way to get to net zero for power through renewables and storage, which is technically possible, but many parts of the world are still building gas and coal plants as we speak, which will be online in the 2040s, still, they're long, long lifetimes. And so we need to also be realistic, I think, about considering CCS for fossil fuel power abatement, which potentially 10 years ago, or even five years ago, maybe we thought we could get, do away with. Um, and just putting this into the EU context, finally, 
There's about 53 million tons of capacity in the pipeline to get built by 2030. So actually, we're in line with what the EU wants to come online by 2030, that 50 million tons, which is great. But the EU's goal jumps to 280 million tons by 2040 and 450 million tons by 2050. That's actually really significant. Um, it's almost double the amount that actually our scenarios show the EU that's necessary in Europe to reach Europe's net zero goals. So I think the EU is being very ambitious with um, thinking about BECs, so this biogenic removal, and also thinking a bit about, yeah, how do we just make sure industry decarbonizes as, as, as soon as possible? And of course, it's a great place to do that because of the EU ETS, the carbon tax, which I'm sure we'll talk about in, in our debate. Yeah, that's a good point that it's actually the 2040 and 2050 targets that are the big ambitious one and maybe the more questionable in terms of the ability to deliver. Um, uh, you also mentioned, Claire, that uh, for industry, this is really the focus here. And for sure, the Commission's strategy emphasizes the industrial uh, potential for CCUS much more than the power generation uh, potential. So let's go to Maria Joao Duarte next. Um, what have been Mitsubishi Heavy Industries' activities in this space so far? And do you think that these targets, particularly looking ahead to after 2030, do you think these targets are, are feasible for industry, for industrial activities using CCUS? Good morning. Thank you, uh, Dave, and thanks everyone that uh, that joined this panel. Uh, it makes it quite easier to come at the end uh, of all these introductions. Um, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is a global technology uh, company, and we have uh, over 30 years experience in uh, in the CCUS industry. Uh, as Miles uh, very clearly stated, uh, the issue is not a technology one. Uh, we have uh, our own uh, developed our own post-combustion capture technology, um, and we have supplied roughly 16 uh, commercial carbon and highlight on the commercial um, carbon capture plants globally, uh, with further two projects under construction. Currently, one of them being in Italy, um, led by ENI in Ravenna. Um, so. All in all, we are uh, responsible for roughly two-thirds of today's carbon capture market. Um, what we have seen in the, in the current period, against, of course, uh, the decade, the precedent decade, uh, is a drastic increase in the number uh, of projects under development worldwide, including in Europe. And that's a very interesting um, change. Beyond uh, carbon capture technologies, uh, MHI has also been active along the value chain with solutions like CO2 compressors, the transport of liquefied CO2 carriers um, and CO2 uh, utilization by injecting uh, um, financing into um, smaller companies that are developing very innovative technologies like Infineon or LensaTech. So in that sense, I think from the technology perspective, we can confidently say that uh, the technology is there, is mature, is commercially available. But as my colleagues have mentioned, now it's a matter, of course, of scaling up, using it in a completely different context, and this is the context of decarbonization. 
And the business case there is pretty, well, it's less obvious. And it will include, of course, this extremely complex uh, value chain, a number of coordinated, well-coordinated actions uh, uh, throughout uh, transport and storage. And that's where we see uh, the, missing, the missing pieces. So uh, we are extremely happy that the Commission has recognized the role of carbon capture to achieve uh, uh, the carbon neutrality targets. This is even more important in the sense that we as an organization have also set our climate neutrality uh, target uh, by 2040. And we are counting on these technologies as well for our own emissions, not just to provide market players to decarbonize. Whether these um, targets are realistic? Well, we hope so. Um, the question now is really, we need this kind of visibility towards uh, the future to understand how to better plan our activities. Claire mentioned, Miles mentioned, I think everyone mentioned that we are really talking about a massive scale up and these will come for us, companies providing these technologies with a need of skills that has, is unprecedented and supply chains, of course, that are not necessarily available today. So in that sense, this uh, communication and this strategy is a very welcome step and, and we will be following as closely as possible. Thanks. So, Ragna, let's turn to you next. So, we've talked a lot about EU policy here, but obviously national policy is really important as well. Um, what has Norway been doing in this space, and how do you think that the national uh, regulatory configurations here are going to play a role going forward? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for, for the question. And, and uh, let me also just start by saying that from the Norwegian side, we are very happy uh, to see um, the ambition of the European Commission uh, at the moment. We think this is uh, very uh, promising on, on the national side. Of course, um, uh, in Norway, we have been working on this for, for quite a number of, of years uh, already. Um, and uh, as um, uh, uh, it was mentioned earlier in the debate, it's very clear that um, where, although it might have been a focus on fossil fuels uh, in the beginning, this is not what it's about today. Uh, when um, CCS started in Norway, uh, actually in the mid-1990s, um, uh, the reason was uh, company needing to uh, take out CO2 from their gas stream uh, in order to be able to sell that that gas, so that's where we started, uh, and uh, and uh, we've actually been uh, storing one million tons of CO2 annually in Norway since 1996. So we have been doing this for quite some time. Uh, we know it uh, works, uh, and uh, I definitely agree to uh, what has been said earlier that uh, technology. That's not the issue. It's more the business model. And uh, what we are doing uh, these days is um, uh, finalizing a full-scale uh, CCS um... uh, Ragnar, we seem to have lost no. Ragnar's feed, yeah. might be coming back. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry, we lost so you for a can second. So can you hear me now? Now. now? Sorry. Yes, we can. 
Okay, sorry, sorry about that. No, I was uh, just trying to explain um, the full-scale value chain, which we are establishing in Norway at the moment, uh, which uh, will consist of capturing of CO2 exactly from uh, cement factory storage uh, on the Norwegian continental shelf. Uh, and actually this infrastructure is built to take on large volumes of uh, CO2 also from, from the rest of, of Europe. Um, and uh, we actually had a Norwegian energy minister in uh, Brussels uh, three weeks ago, and he was uh, mentioning the net zero industry act and this 50 million tons uh, ambition, uh, uh, also explaining that uh, on the Norwegian continental shelf, we can probably match this figure uh, in the early 1930s uh, alone, um, because we now see much more interest in this than we have seen for uh, for for or any time really, uh, and the Norwegian Energy Minister has uh, awarded licenses to eleven different companies to establish uh, storage on the Norwegian continental shelf, and that capacity might be as much as forty million tons uh, a year. So, uh, so of course, these uh, things have to happen uh, in different countries, and support from the different uh, states will definitely be be uh, crucial. Thanks, Ragnar. So now you in the audience will be able to ask your questions to the panelists. Uh, you can scan the QR code that's up on your screen, type your questions in there, and I will put them to the panelists in just a little bit. Um, but first, I wanted to ask the panelists about this infrastructure issue. So some of you alluded to this uh, in, in what you've said so far. The infrastructure challenge is a big one here, right? We know that this is this is the part that really requires a lot of in investment, and it's it's big. It's, it's a really big challenge to build these things. Rude, tell us how does the commission strategy address this infrastructure issue, the accompanying infrastructure, and how can the national authorities, the national utilities, really be helped in order to meet this big challenge of building the infrastructure that needs to come along with these facilities? Indeed, I think infrastructure, as I mentioned, is one of our key enablers to help really kind of put this this uh, CCUS strategy, this industrial carbon management strategy uh, online. So we have indeed this target of 50 million tons of uh, capture, uh, sorry, uh, storage facilities. So those storage facilities are not necessarily, of course, where the CO2 is being emitted. And I think that's, that is really important because even with kind of the, the carbon price that we have today, the EU ETS, some capture of that CO2 is really already competitive. So if you can capture it with the technologies, it's already competitive. The issue is how, what are the costs then to bring that CO2 to those storage places and how much do I need to pay for those storage places? So there's a couple of elements to it and I quickly allude to three of them. First one is kind of cross-border planning. So already we are under what is called a, a European framework for uh, energy networks. We already are supporting a number of projects uh, to develop CO2 infrastructure. We already have hubs somewhere kind of in Northwest Europe, a, a couple of five that we are already supporting. And actually in November, we published a new list of projects, which also have projects not only in the Northwest anymore, but actually across the whole of the EU. So those projects are already emerging. 
Now, the next challenge is to make sure that we have this, that, that cross-border infrastructure, uh, making sure that those pipelines are also shipping routes, because a lot of them are shipping routes uh, connected to each other. The second one is indeed the costs. Uh, our estimates uh, we have uh, that we have to kind of uh, ensure that this 50 million tons is captured and then stored points to about 7,000 kilometers of either shipping routes or pipelines with an estimated cost of 16 billion euros. So there, again, a business model needs to be developed and also certainty needs to be developed. So that's another part of what we are putting forward, making sure that we create kind of a regulatory framework that allows, of course, those investments to be recuperated, but also the, the certainty for those people who are then obviously going to use that infrastructure. And then the third part, and again, that is very important, uh, is that we are already looking at, can we set, for example, minimum standards for this CO2? And harmonized standards across the EU means that if you have a capture facility in one country and a storage facility in another country, that everyone knows what kind of the standards are to be used, again, helping that business case to develop. So those are three of the activities. There are many more of them, but I think those are three that the ones that we, for example, have highlighted in the strategy and we want to take forward uh, with the next commission. Cedric, from the industry side, what would you say is really needed for the infrastructure that pairs with these projects? Uh, look, Ruth mentioned uh, one of the, the, the essential elements. Um, we need we need a, a regulatory framework and standards that give us the certainty and get, get, give us a, a fair level playing field to access the infrastructure. For example, uniform um, um, liquid CO2 specifications to access storage sites and transport infrastructure is absolutely essential to give us the flexibility to deploy uh, um, those partnerships and <clears throat> and 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 do this in a in, in a competitive way. Um, we also need a a, a framework um, that gives us enough flexibility. What I mean by that is that in the case of cement manufacturing, every capture project is radically different. There is no one size fits all. It's all about where you are located, what's your transport ecosystem, what's your industrial ecosystem, and every project varies from one to the other. So while we fully support what the, the Commission is, is, is doing and the framework that is being developed and, and, and really supportive of, of the industrial carbon management communication, the work remains to be done, uh, so to speak, so that we have the different pieces that that come together and allow us to deploy this uh, um, at scale uh, and making sure that all the specificities are taken on board in a fair way. Let me give you an example. We, we've mentioned a lot the fact that uh, this is about uh, fossil CO2. The way we see it is that there are different types of CO2. There is biogenic CO2, there is atmospheric CO2, there is fossil CO2 emerging from, uh, uh, from fossil fuel use, but there is also other forms of CO2, such as geogenic or mineral uh, forms of CO2. And all of these needs to be taken into account so that we can all fit in the framework in a way that works and, and, and reflects what we're trying to do. Because there is a reality. Our economy is based on carbon. Our economy will require carbon to function. 
this carbon needs to be made available in a competitive way. Today, the, uh, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, uh, atmospheric removal comes at a, a massive energy cost, uh, which, is, which is totally unfeasible today. We have industrial sources of CO2, which are non-fossil, which do not emerge from fossil. The framework must enable us to put it at the disposal of the, uh, uh, of the economy in a competitive way that, of course, respects the, uh, the, uh, the carbon neutrality of, of, um, of Europe. And I will make a, a, a last comment where, at some point, Claire, in her introduction, very elo eloquently uh, demonstrated why CCUS technologies are, are part of the decarbonization pathway for, for industry. Let me just uh, clarify one thing. CCS, it, it's not a silver bullet. CCS deployment, CCUS deployment is very expensive. We need to, we've talked about this business case. So the less CO2 we have to capture, transport, use and or store, the better that we will be. So the prerequisite is for us to eliminate that CO2 to start with as much as technology allows us to do. Defossilizing our energy, uh, um, find different formulations for our, for our clinker and our cement, using alternative materials that are just emerging right now. All of this is part of the mix so that we reduce the pool of CO2 and only have to capture what technology does not allow us to capture today. I'll, I'll stop there for now, Dave. Well, on that point, Claire, uh, and then Miles, I'll come to you after. Claire, the, the, I alluded to at the beginning that some people are concerned that building CCUS facilities and infrastructure are just a way to continue the, the use of fossil fuels. Um, is, is that the case? How do you respond to people who, who make that criticism? Uh, and you know, as, as Cedric just mentioned, this is a very expensive proposition. Uh, so, is does it have to go hand in hand by by ver by the very expensiveness of the technology? Does it have to go hand in hand with carbon reduction? Yeah. So, Cedric, you're you're very. Right. Obviously, what we don't want to do is just say, throw up our hands and say, there's no other option. Let's just throw billions of dollars at carbon capture and continue with the same processes. As you said, in cement and concrete making, there's lots of exciting technologies um, using new materials, as well as you know, electrification of the process. Um, in steel, there's, we can absolutely, and we are already in, in the EU, building hydrogen-based steel and electrifying you know, the, the, the making of steel from scrap. So I think there's lots of routes industry can go, um, not only as well, circular economy and reducing, reusing, um, being more efficient with our uh, the consumer items we're recycling, et cetera. The challenge we, we face is those routes are either expensive and all expensive, or they aren't necessarily as technically proven as CCS, or they may well be the answer for lots and lots of new build projects. The challenge we have is industrial assets can last 40 or 50 years. So the ones we've built in the last 20 years that are designed to run on fossil fuels without basically decommissioning or significantly retrofitting them, CCS does seem to be suitable. I think every single new steel mill we build ideally should be hydrogen and electricity should be the main inputs, for instance, rather than coal. But we have a lot of steel mills still running on coal. Um, or natural gas. So CCS is essential for existing projects that run on fossil fuels, 
um, or if not essential, it seems to be the most suitable and, and cost efficient route. Completely, it is expensive, as you said, Cedric. We are talking about massive infrastructure projects, never mind the transport and storage costs um, that Ruth mentioned. Um, but if you look at the cost of CCS in terms of the cost to capture the carbon, or let's put it in terms of a carbon price, right? Because we kind of know that in the EU, the carbon price today is about 100 euros a tonne. You're looking at carbon capture for some industrial sites, things like hydrogen or ethanol being only about $20 a ton, um, up to what the most expensive type of carbon capture is capturing carbon from um, natural gas facilities. And that's about, we think about $97 a ton. Um, so you're actually able, if those plants are within the carbon tax system that the EU has, and many of them will be brought into that in the next decade, you're able to do this in a way that is cheaper than if you actually um, pay the taxes. So yes, it's expensive. The EU is in a position where it, where it has this tax, which makes CCS actually potentially economically feasible, or at least makes more sense to companies. I, I, I think we do need actually subsidies and, and financial support for these projects. And we're seeing the EU Innovation Fund support some projects, including some wholesomes, but it's not a big enough pot of money. So we do actually need some, some more policy besides the sticks. To your point about, um, is it just a free pass for the fossil fuel industry? There's, so there's two ways the fossil fuel sector has to play with CCS. One, we cannot exclude it from being involved in helping us with the storage because the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas, um, exploration companies and the engineering firms surrounding that sector have the most expertise when it comes to storing um, gas and liquids underground. And what we're planning to use CO2 storage for is often depleted or empty oil wells. So it makes very little sense to exclude the oil and gas sector from that. And as Miles mentioned at the beginning, the Net Zero Industry Act, um, at least the European Parliament is proposing that um, companies involved in production of oil and gas in the EU are the ones that do the storage. And that makes a lot of sense. What I think would be good to talk about you know, with policymakers is to what extent should we try and skew support um, and carrots and sticks towards industry or other sectors that need CCS as opposed to just maybe as critics say, propping up um, existing fossil fuel producers. Miles, you wanted to come in on this as well? I did, yes, because I mean, I always worry when people start talking about subsidies because subs and, and also relying on the ETS likewise. I mean, you know, the ETS is in principle, as you say, higher than the cost of CCS, and yet people don't invest because people don't have confidence that the ETS will stay necessarily at the at the height, at the level required to uh, for, for these projects to be economic. So I think we need a we need a big picture, simple destination for people. And I just wanted to draw attention to something Cedric said, which I think is very important and could be really. Um, uh, digested, I hope, by many people in Brussels, which is, Cedric said, he wasn't in the business of CCUS for the sake of it, he was in the business of decarbonizing construction. And the point is that um, his company, Holston, has taken a position, um, a, 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 a commercial uh, calculation, that decarbonized cement will have a role to play in decarbonized construction in the 2050s, which, and I suspect they're correct. And by decarbonized cement, what he means cement in which all the CO2 generated by the production of that cement is disposed of back underground. And, and that principle, that very simple principle that you shouldn't sell stuff that causes global warming after the mid-century, um, that, that essentially drives everything else. 
And, and one thing I think we need to do a much better job of communicating to the public is that this is what we're doing. We're in the business here of decarbonizing the products that people want to use. And if people realize that getting rid of CO2 is just an essential requirement for using a product that they want to use, then they're much more likely to accept the, both the money and, of course, the, the, the imposition of infrastructure required to do so. Europe has demonstrated that when there's an imperative to build infrastructure, you know, look at what happened with the LNG plants that were built in about six months when everybody said it was totally impossible. It, you know, when, when, when everybody recognizes something needs to happen, it can happen very fast. But what needs to happen is for everyone to understand that if you're going to use stuff like aviation fuel or cement from mid-century, so if you're going to fly from mid-century, you're going to have to get rid of CO2 because we won't be flying on biofuels by mid-century, that's for sure. So, you know, that's the message we need to get across to the public. It's a very simple one. From 2050, no one should be allowed to sell stuff that causes global warming within the jurisdiction, that within the continental region of Europe. And that'd be a very simple thing for the European Commission to make clear, and then immediately the destination is clear and everything else falls into place. Um, Ragnar, you wanted to come in on this issue of incentives. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, and maybe also on the last uh, comment uh, by by Alan, because uh, of course it's um, uh, we've been working on CCS for for quite a while. It's been uh, ups and downs, I could uh, definitely say, uh, but I do believe that we are uh, in a moment of time where we can see a really rapid deployment of of this. Um, technology is, is there. Um, what governments need to be doing and also the, the commission is, is also to facilitate uh, this. And again, to take an example from, from Norway, there is a combination of carrot and, and stick. Uh, when this project started in the early 1990s, it was an advantage that the government had introduced a CO2 tax uh, some, some years before. That, that added to the decision to store the CO2 instead of emitting it. Uh, on the current side, the government, uh, of course, uh, up until now, uh, shoulder a large part of the cost. But going forward, this needs to change. And, and now we see so many uh, potential projects coming up in so many countries. And we do know that once we start building these, uh, once we start getting the um, infrastructure in place, cost will come down. And I believe that we are... Uh, uh, at a moment in, in time where this can actually happen, and it needs to happen. Um, Maria, what would you say with with everything we've just been discussing, both for the infrastructure costs and for the cost of the facilities themselves, what is the main thing that industry needs from policymakers, both at EU level and at national level, to actually make these investments happen? Yeah, it has been a very interesting and uh, a lot of Food for thoughts here. Um, so let me just uh, go a step back. I think it is uh, fundamental that we understand that CO2 is not an elastic resource. So we'll not start emitting more to transport more and store more. And the moment we understand that, we also uh, come to perhaps the understanding that, or a clear un understanding why this is so um, difficult because 
also these TSOs and these entities that will be ultimately responsible to create these storage sites need visibility about the amounts. And we are actually on the trajectory of reducing uh, CO2. So I think that visibility um, is, is crucial. Um, what do we need? I think we need a number of things. And is, they have to all uh, be built in parallel. I think everyone already alluded to, to these. We need, of course, we think we need subsidies. We need some carrots to start the market, to kickstart the market. These can't be there forever. Regnar also made that very clear, and we absolutely agree. The CO2 price is an absolute driver for all these exercises. But we also see already outside of the EU, CBAM having an impact, and CBAM has not even been implemented fully yet. But we are already signing MOUs with aluminium uh, smelter companies to decarbonize. So we already see that these policies in addition, so the sticks, in addition to the carrots, are absolutely crucial to make to make all these work. Um, but I think one thing that is still missing in the debate quite a lot, well, we discussed transport storage, is coming back to what Cedric mentioned, which is we need a demand pool. We need a creation of a market for zero carbon or low carbon products, which is today, not yet there. So we had, I think we have two quite successful uh, pieces of legislation, at least in the intention, now we have to see the implementation uh, with the, the maritime and the aviation uh, fuels. I think that will be an interesting driver for the markets, but we need that similarly for other materials, other products. And if we do not have that in the case, of uh, decarbonization of uh, uh, hard to abate or energy intensive uh, industries that are producing something for the society, for a decarbonize, decarbonized society, it will be very difficult to actually then uh, uh, sponsor all these and create viable business cases. Yeah, it's a good point on the use that we actually have to find markets for selling this. Um, let's go to the questions that have come in from the audience. So we have two questions here from Winnend Stuffs, uh, and it's on the subject of the sectors, which sectors should be targeted here. First question is for Rude. Second question is for Miles. So first question to Rude. The strategy seemed to be neutral with regards to which sectors can use CCS slash CCU, why were residual emitting sectors not clearly defined and listed? And second question to Miles. Considering the hype around CCS and CCU as a solution for many industries, what is stopping the creation of a mandate for major emitting sectors that we'll need in the future, such as cement, uh, not fossil fuels, to do CCS? So first question to Rude about residual emitting sectors being clearly defined. Yes, uh, indeed. And I think I want to take this, this question in, in two parts. First of all, the issue of residual emissions itself, because linking it back to the discussion we just had, uh, it is clear that we need to have these decarbonized products on the one hand side into the market to have that pool. 
But at the same time, one of the important elements of this industrial carbon man management strategy is indeed that we have to look at removals. For the first time, we as a European Commission not only looked at getting to zero in 2050, we were looking at getting to zero within a limited carbon budget. So that really also means that we not only have to decarbonize the products to be in zero in 2050, we also have to look at strategies to actually start removing the CO2 that has been building up over those years and that will be building up still in the period up to 2030. So, so ensuring that those kind of those the residual emissions that will still be there are removed will need a business case as well and that is some of the i think there's an important message that this that this strategy highlights as well now the second part of the question is okay why did we not identify those residual emissions now first of all the strategy of course came together with the the climate target uh plan for 2040 uh, and there we clearly uh, have some sectors identified where we still see co2 emissions uh, for example, um, in some pieces of the transport sector, in some pieces of the agricultural sector, for example, we will still have CO2 emissions that we cannot kind of remove either via nature-based solutions, for example, developing more forests, uh, etc., to kind of capture that CO2 in the soil, um, uh, or, or by other means. So that's where these residual emissions are important. Um, so what have we done in the strategy? Two things. First of all, we didn't want to mention them because we also don't want to give a license huh, to continue to reduce emissions. We've heard here there are very exciting technologies going on, developments all the time. So there shouldn't be a license for a specific sector to continue to, to emit. But secondly, we did put in place as an action plan to really start to develop these sec sectoral roadmaps. So to look with each and one of those roadmaps to see how can we really reduce your emissions, not only to 2050, but also reduce it over the timeline as possible. So that is definitely work which will that we have proposed and put forward to continue upon. So that's an interesting point. So awareness to put targets on specific sectors because it might send the signal, go ahead and keep emitting because you are going to have CCS. Miles, I think that relates to the question that was put to you. Um, what do you feel about uh, this idea of having uh, mandates for specific sectors on CCS? I think mandates are, I think it's very important to recognize that mandates are eventually inevitable. Whether they're called mandates or they're called something else, uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, but if we're, if we're going to get to climate neutrality, then by 2050, we cannot afford for stuff to be sold in Europe that still causes global warming. Now, whether the carbon dioxide is captured within Europe where the product is used or whether it's captured upstream, perhaps where the product is produced, it doesn't really matter. But it's going to have to be captured somewhere and disposed of permanently if we're going to meet our climate goals. Now, that might be achieved by an emission, uh, an ETS price that's so high that it's cheaper to capture CO2 from the atmosphere and put it back underground and to pay your emission price, or it just could be achieved by a, a mandate on anyone selling stuff in Europe, any products in Europe, they have to be 100% decarbonized. So, but I, the, the, the effect is the same thing, um, that you, you, you pass on the cost of decarbonization to the residual consumers of all products 
that currently or in the future may cause global warming. On this issue of picking essential sectors, I'm, I mean, as a scientist, I'm a little uncomfortable with predicting today what is going to be an essential emission in the 2040s. You know, I think that's, that's really a fool's game. So I think what we need to establish is the principle that whatever your emission, whether you think it's essential or not, or whether somebody else agrees that it's essential, whatever your emission, if you're still generating carbon dioxide, you need to be disposing of it permanently, which means putting it back underground by mid-century. That's the basic principle that the physics dictates. And underneath that, what is still considered an essential activity, I think is neither here nor there. And, and the, the, the really important point is, if we do this, of course, the cost of disposing of carbon dioxide will be passed on eventually to people who use carbon dioxide generating products. So if you're going to use cement and <clears throat> uh, 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 and and uh, Holst, uh, Cedric will be um, disposing of all the carbon dioxide associated with the production of that cement, your cement is going to be more expensive. So you'll probably use less of it or you'll use it more frugally or you might use different building materials instead. But that's the way the market should work. The fundamental principle is that none of the products on sale in Europe should still be causing global warming by 2050. It's a very simple message. And it really worries me that I don't hear this very simple message coming out of the commission as a logical consequence of our commitment to climate neutrality. Well, just out of curiosity, does anyone on the panel like the idea of setting mandates for specific sectors now? Okay, no, so it's... Uh mandates for specific sectors. I'm saying nothing can be sold. Well, I mean, if, if the world's going to meet its climate goals, nothing can be sold anywhere in the world that still causes global warming. That's just a, a physical fact. If you're still selling stuff that causes global warming, we're still having global warming. That's the way it goes. So we just need acknowledgement that eventually every product sold in the European Union will need to be no longer causing global warming by mid-century. Okay, let's take another question from the audience. So this question is for Cedric. Uh, so the question is from Riley Kajaste. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. How do you see the balance between CCS slash CCU and technologies that reduce the actual process emissions, such as low emitting cement? The feasibility of CCUS business depends highly on the infra solution. So it relates a bit to what Miles was just saying. Cedric, how do you see that interaction? <laughs> Look, I, I, I wish I had the, the perfect answer, uh, uh, and, and, and I, don't, I don't have it. Um, you know, we have hundreds of sites, and as I said at the beginning, our aim is to use every lever that we have at our disposal to decarbonize the construction products that we put on the market. And that is heavily impacted by where you are geographically located. What are your natural resources available around you? Do you have uh, pozzolanic materials that are um, coming from volcanic activity? You might have them in one place. Those are not available in the other place. So our strategy will vary from, from place to place. If we have a, a, cement, in, a cement plant in Europe, which is uh, uh, in the pre-Alps uh, geographies, it will be much more complex to develop and access uh, um, uh, the transport facility to go and store it uh, um, 
underground uh, geologically in the North Sea in an economic way. So again, every project is different. Every every location is different and, and heavily influenced by the, the resources we have available locally and what we are able to put in place uh, uh, locally. So there is no one size fits all. There is no silver bullet. We need to use every single lever we have at our disposal, as I said before, from decarbonizing our energy sources. And in, in some locations, it will mean uh, um, in Belgium, for example, we are deploying with um, uh, uh, an energy provider, uh, uh, one of the country's largest uh, uh, floating PV facility uh, for all the electricity needs that we will have to operate a CCU facility on, on that side in Belgium. Um, in other countries, it's uh, starting to use Cal Saint-Clay in France, for example, that allows us to reduce the CO2 intensity of our cement by 50% in one go. And that's, that's what we're doing today, not in 2030, 40 or 50. That's what we're starting uh, uh, to do today. And that brings me to, to, to one point, is that if CCUS is to work, in, in, in terms of achieving the, or contributing to achieving the, the EU objective that uh, um, Ruth mentioned at the beginning, a 90% reduction of CO2 across the economy, it means we will need hundreds of projects around the single market in every single member state. Um, so we need to ensure um, that we are able to build this portfolio. We can't wait. We, we, we are not in, a, in an ability today to ensure that every single project that we are building is perfect. There are physical restrictions. There are, um, we cannot get a price for 2030 uh, 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 for all the CO2 that we will generate and need to store. So we are physically limited, but we, we can't wait. We can't wait. We need to start putting these projects on the ground today. We need to start capture. Europe must become the number one continent where where we capture CO2 and we use it, we, uh, we, we store it and, and, and projects will evolve um, over time, but we need to start and hit at all the buttons that we have available today. Well, we have two related questions for Ruth next. Uh, so the first question is from Peter Holdorf. 99% of virgin carbon-based products, such as plastics, remain fossil-based. How does the Commission intend to incentivize the scale-up of fossil-free alternatives? There, this is needed for majority non-fossil carbon use industry by 2040. Second question, also to Ruth, is from uh, Tudy Bernier, Bernier of CO2 Value Europe. Uh, under current EU rules, using oil to produce chemicals is treated as equal to using captured carbon to create the same chemicals. How does the EU Commission propose to address this to move away from fossil resources? So in other words, should the use of uh, captured carbon to make chemicals receive an incentive compared to that uh, which uses oil? Uh, Ruth? Yes, uh, indeed. Uh one of the sectors which we will have to look at in order to get to this climate neutrality uh, in, in 2050 is the, the, the chemical sectors, uh, a major consumer of what I said also the C molecule from fossil fuels. And again, rightly so mentioned, all, almost all of that comes from uh, essentially oil as, as, got, as, as its source, as, as its product. Now, in a lot of our analysis on the one hand side, 
uh, we are looking at kind of reducing the the old consumption uh, for those products. So either replacing it with biogenic sources, so that's the, the one hand side, or combining this C molecule with, for example, the production of, of renewable hydrogen, where again, then you can recombine it to create those products. Or the third way, and that was also began, uh, mentioned in the beginning, thinking about the circular economy. Actually, for the technological nerds uh, uh, around uh, the, the, this audience, the impact assessment, for example, has specific scenarios where we look at the circular economy. And there it is clearly, and I think someone mentioned it here as well, the, 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 the whole scale of, of CO2 capture comes down with, say, about 20% if we're really looking at kind of the circular economy as one way uh, of doing it. Now, then the, there's the question on how to incentivize that. So on the one hand side, indeed, again, we're talking about the, the issue about kind of uh, putting this, this, this price on CO2. So therefore, uh, it will become uh, uh, more interesting to kind of look at the use of, of CO2. The other hand, and we've talked about this before, Miles mentioned before, we need to have kind of the demand side pulling for those products that are CO2 neutral. But we're also, and this is one of the action items in the strategy as well, is that we want to look at, for example, how we are organizing the EU emissions trading scheme today. And of course, uh, this EU emissions trading scheme is going to evolve over time. We still have free allowances. Those free allowances will go down. We're extending the emissions trading scheme. But of course, the next phase is also to look at, okay, how can you start using it and actually kind of incentivize these, what we know, what we call removals in the system as well. And that would indeed include kind of the circular use of the CO2 in an in industry and award that uh, within the system as well. So there's no one answer. There's multiple elements that we are doing in order to kind of reduce the consumption of that fossil fuel as kind of a non as as non-energy, as kind of a, a, a source for the production of these plastics and chemicals. And Ruth, you just mentioned the ETS, so let me take this opportunity to put one more question to you from the audience, which is on that point. It's from Soren Oliver Tim. Given that most of you are assuming that ETS will be the economic driver for the dissemination of CCS in the EU, are there any forecasts that you know of regarding the ETS price in 2030, 2035? Um, if you're assuming that ETS drives it, does that mean you're basing it on a certain expectation of future price? So we, we're saying it's one of the drivers, and it's a basic driver. Uh, but it's not the only one. Uh, like I mentioned before, and I think Claire gave us also some figures of, of, of her analysis, uh, it can capture, it can cover the cost of capturing that CO2, but in, in, in most cases, as we see today, it's not sufficient yet to also cover the cost of that transport and that storage. So we need more than just that. The consumer demand, the price which can come from that is another important driver for that. Uh, we have using the, we're using the innovation fund uh, already uh, to kind of support this project by project basis. Um, but also, for example, other kind of instruments that we are having, for example, the, the next generation EU, the big budget that we gave to the member states to help us with kind of climate change and climate adaptation. Again, that's a big uh, financing pot that, for example, could be used for the development of infrastructure. So there are a whole array of elements, but ultimately, and I think we, we all agree on that, 
beyond 2030, we, we clearly have to have a look at these systems without kind of subsidies from governments. This needs to be a, a business case. And I think here also we have to think one step further because we, we're talking about Europe today. Uh, but as Claire mentioned before, we need to be climate neutral globally. So what can we do here in Europe to develop these supply chains, also to make e economic uh, kind of opportunities for the industries that we have here, uh, also to help also outside of the EU to make those economies uh, to, to decarbonize? I want to go back to this question about what we do with the captured carbon and where the market for it is. And so we have two related questions here. I'm going to put these to Maria and Claire. Uh, Maria, I'll go to you first. So uh, first question here is from Alistair McCormick. What do you foresee the balance of biology-based CCUS, such as algal biorefineries, and non-bio-based CCUS, such as DAC plants technology? What do you see the difference in terms of the uptake for different sectors? And related question from Caroline Aumarin, how do you see the push for CCS also of biogenic CO2 influencing the pricing for biogenic CO2 and the impact it will have on the CCU-based fuels such as e-fuels? Uh, Maria, I'll put those to you first. Yeah, thanks. So um, I guess it's difficult to, to have a, a um, a clear answer, a uh, crystal clear answer to that at the moment. But what we see uh, is definitely DAC coming um, further down the line in terms of the economics and therefore playing a role, a more substantial role uh, later after the 2040s. Um, I think that's as far as I can answer that question. Claire, what about you? bunch of um, cost analysis on this point, actually. The direct air capture, which is basically where you're sucking sucking air into a kind of big vacuum um, and you're pulling out the CO2 um, and then you're storing it or using it however you want to. Um, as, as Ruth said, it's a way of getting, I guess, almost carbon negative um, or, or helping some sectors otherwise can't do carbon capture. The cost today are over $1,000 a ton of CO2 to do that. Um, again, context, the EU has the strongest carbon price in the world, and that's 100 euros a ton. So we are nowhere near being cost effective um, for any DAC project. Now, our forecast and, and talking to companies doing this, the goal is to get to $100 a ton by 2050. We cannot wait until 2050 to start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So to your one of your, I think it was maybe Alistair, one of the previous um, questions you mentioned, Dave, from the audience, biogenic capture therefore is going to be really essential. Let's say we end up building DAC projects in the 2040s and they cost a few hundred dollars a ton of CO2. By then, as Miles said, either there's a mandate and companies just have to do DAC to be able to license, be licensed to produce or build, produce their products or build their plants, or there's great carbon prices globally and that's a way of doing it. Fine, but we need much sooner forms of removal. Um, we talked about biogenic capture the most commercialized version of that is burning biomass in a power plant and capturing the co2 the point source emissions with carbon capture that's called bex bioenergy and carbon capture and storage that's actually much more feasible because you can sell the the, the clean power for income 
you then only need to, well, only need today um, a carbon price or an offset price of maybe $100 a ton of CO2. So that's kind of, you could probably do that in the UK, Norway, the EU. And that price will drop um, as we begin to see scale um, and the cost of carbon capture falling. So our estimates show we can get down to maybe an offset price of about $60 a ton for BEX. Um, now, I, I say offset price because one of the big drivers of carbon removals may well be the voluntary offset market, not regulated by any governments, um, hopefully will be soon-ish, but that is where corporates are stepping in and saying, we want to go net zero and we'd rather buy offsets to do it. Um, and big technology companies in the US particularly are buying these removal offsets as the highest quality form of offset. So that could be a way that we also see things going in Europe. Um, but those are kind of the prices, the, the costs of doing those things as compared to what I mentioned earlier, which is the cost of doing point source carbon capture is cheaper for um, industrial um, and you know, chemicals assets than it is doing carbon removal. So that kind of, that's where we sit. And just to the previous point about carbon pricing, BNF forecasts the EU ETS. Um, again, it's a forecast, so it's never right. But actually, the, from what we can see with regards to allowances and new industries entering and EU policy, our forecast shows prices in the EU rising to 149 euros a ton by 2030, which again, maybe helps show why at least, I think Bina thinks the UETS, if it is here to stay, is, a, is gonna be a big driver of carbon capture. So we are just about out of time, but I do wanna do one more audience question to Ragnar. Um, and this is something we haven't talked about yet. Curious about the situation in Norway. Um, Errol Riza asks, um, how, do, how do you think that data centers could capture carbon given the energy they consume? Ragnar, is this something that's happening in Norway at all or the, are there plans to have this happen in Norway? Uh, on uh, CCS, not uh, today as I'm aware of. Um, we have the uh, focus on uh, on um, uh, capturing of CO2 from cement factories, from waste incineration, from uh, other kinds of, of industries. I haven't uh, heard about the data centers so far, but uh, we'll see. Who knows? Uh, Miles, do you know if this is happening anywhere, CCS from data centers? Um, I mean, I would rather the data centers focused on using uh, carbon-free energy in the first place. Uh, I mean, it, it seems, uh, it, uh, you know, I think we have to get get back to basics. I mean, we, you know, it, it, think of the product level. If the product that the data center is selling, data, um, is not generating carbon dioxide, is not causing global warming, then more power to them. Um, and, and if it is, then they should stop it. And I think if we just apply that universally across the board, uh, we simplify thinking massively. And this is what I'd really, you know, we've heard a lot of complexity and a lot of difficulty and so on in the answers um, on this on this call. I think in the end, we've got a pretty simple challenge in front of us. We've got to stop fossil fuels from causing global warming. We've got to stop limestone use and cement from causing global warming. And when we've done that, we're done. Um, and we know how to do it. We just got to get rid of the CO2. Well, I think that's a good way of summing it up to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank all of the panelists for some really interesting interventions here. This is a really live issue here in Brussels, and particularly with the strategy that's just come out, this is going to be a big topic of conversation here over the coming months, and it's going to be something that the next commission is going to have to pretty quickly lay out its store on. It's going to have to 
say, are we standing fully behind CCUS uh, as a big potential here, or are we going to uh, not? And, and that will be up to the next commission, and that will make a huge difference in terms of companies' spending plans and in terms of their plans on how they intend to reduce their carbon footprint in a way that can get us to that net zero 2050 goal. So I want to thank all the panelists for some really interesting comments. Thank you for you watching at home, spending your morning with us. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. That is all from us, signing off from here at the Euractive Studios in the heart of the EU quarter in Brussels. Thank you.